Hey everyone, this is Marcel. And this is Isabel, and you are now listening to the Top Rank Podcast. For any new listeners, our podcast is an exploratory research platform centered on individuals of diverse backgrounds who are driving, shaping, and challenging their fields and the world around them. Today, we are so pleased to be speaking with Pamela Newkirk, a journalist, professor at NYU, and author of the new book, Diversity, Inc. This word, diversity, has recently become a popular buzzword in schools, politics, entertainment, and in corporate America. But as Pamela Newkirk writes, it's impossible to understand diversity without exploring the big business of it. Thank you so much, Pamela, for being on the show with us today. Um, we have several questions that we're really excited to get in uh, into with you today. But I guess we wanted to, to start off by asking you a bit more about what is the diversity industry that you explore in your book and what got you interested in writing about it in the first place? Okay, well, thank you for having me here. Yes, so the diversity industry that I'm writing about, um, I'm referring to uh, the diversity czars, the, you know, the professionals who are being hired to oversee large diversity operations. Um, I'm referring to the training programs, the diversity consultants, the uh, diversity conferences, the we, we see so much with the word diversity plastered across it. And so we have this large apparatus and what we don't have is diversity. And what got you exactly interested in investigating this was just, you know, the word diversity being um, in your consciousness as a professor, as a journalist, or is there a moment that you remember where you're like, hey, this is something really compelling that I want to give some more, some more focus and attention to? Yeah, well, the issue has shadowed my entire career. First, um, in daily journalism, um, I I spent 10 years in, in newsrooms where uh, you know, there were always these conversations about diversity, and yet I was the only African-American reporter in three of the four newsrooms that I worked in. There were diversity conferences, and, you know, there there were always the, you know, the these um, conversations around diversity, but we didn't have diversity. And then I moved into uh, academia, where once again, I was in a field in which African-Americans and other people of color are radically underrepresented. And once again, I'm asked to serve on diversity task forces and to have conversations about something that um, over the 25 years that I've been on the faculty, I have not seen uh, substantial progress in, in, you know, in moving us ahead uh, uh, in diversity. And I don't mean uh, specifically uh, New York University where I am. I'm just saying, you know, in, in the in academia at large, you know, African-Americans are 13% or roughly 13% of the national population and hold 4% of university professorships. And that includes um, African-Americans working at historically Black colleges and universities, uh, Latinos who are somewhere around 18% of the population hold just 3% of university professorships. So, you know, while all of these institutions, uh, you know, have these diversity, you know, uh, uh, czars and they have, you know, all of these training programs and climate surveys and consultants, yet the needle is barely moving. Uh, in terms of actually increasing diversity in these operations. So I wanted 
I wanted to explore the tension between the rhetoric around diversity and the billions of dollars that institutions are spending each year on diversity efforts and the lack of diversity. So I I think that, to, that one thing we were wondering as this term has like kind of just be, uh, become taken for granted as like a catch-all for a lot of different issues right. is within the in within the diversity industry what like how do you think that this term is defined and what are some of the approaches products services that are actually being like offered sold right. and, and bought by yeah. what well, well part of the problem is that diversity has become this catch-all that means everything and in some spaces it's become so broad in general that it means nothing. So um, there, there was a, a, a survey of diversity professionals in higher ed, I think it was like 771, um, and, and most could not come to a common understanding of what diversity even meant. Uh, for some, it meant you know valuing difference of all kinds. Um, and for others, it meant um, you know uh, increasing uh, uh, the, the numbers of people who had been historically disadvantaged. And so, you know, it, it got to the point where um, a, a diversity czar at Apple said that for her, 12 blue-eyed blonde men could represent diversity because, because of their different backgrounds and ways of thinking. And so because we have this term that has become so muddled, we've lost sight of the original intent of diversity to address uh, social <laughs> injustice, to address racial injustice, to address the radical underrepresentation of people of color in, in the workplace. So I wanted to specifically direct my attention in this book to racial um, racial uh, diversity because I think it has been eclipsed by the attention to so many different categories, whether we're speaking of gender, uh, sexual orientation, um, mental and physical um, capacity, uh, you know, it, geographic diversity. So it's it, it's so broad. And I wanted to specifically look at race because within race, you also have all of those other categories and people of color become doubly and triply burdened by these overlapping systems of discrimination. And I think, you know, many institutions have lost sight of that. And I think because of that, we're not seeing the needle move for racial diversity, even if we're seeing more women or, or more people with physical and, and um, mental um, issues, or we're seeing different kinds of diversity, but we're not really seeing the needle move on racial diversity. Yeah, it's super interesting to hear you bring up this idea of how diversity itself has become almost like its own theoretical like fetish of sorts where people yeah, develop, it's like develop this, professions around defining it. Yeah. Right. It's like this big feel good. We are the world. Diversity is all of us and it means everything. And, but does it really mean including like folding people who have historically been left out? Does it include folding them into the main of, of the workplace? And so far <clears throat> what the numbers are suggesting is that, 
racial diversity has lost uh, importance, excuse me, importance in this conversation as we look to expanding diversity in other ways. For sure. Wow. What you just said brought up several follow-up questions for me, but I guess you mentioned like I, I the, the language you used around like diversity czar is really, is really interesting for me. And I'd love to hear you talk a bit more about, you know, what is, I, I guess, you know, being someone who in, uh, has researched like corporate America and who's just like a person in the world at a university, hearing mm-hmm. this role of the the chief diversity officer as being, yes. you know, um, this kind of new corporate uh, management position. And you actually, in your book, you give this really um, intense stat about how, and I probably, I'm trying to look for it now because I don't want to get it get it wrong. Okay, right here. It's um, in the year since Trump's 2016 um, election, the diversity industry has exploded. In March 2018, the job site indeed reported that postings for diversity and inclusion jobs had risen a whopping 35% in previous two years. And so I was wondering if you could expand more on like, what is this chief diversity officer role um, at corporations? And what do they do? What are they charged with? Right. So, yeah, th- that figure alone shows how the diversity industry, and it is an industry, has exploded, even if the the, the, the actual um, state of diversity is stagnant and in some cases is in retreat, right? So this chief diversity officer is charged with ensuring that uh, companies, um, you know, increase their diverse workforce. And I think it, it has become this symbolic kind of role that shows that these institutions care about an issue. Um, But in speaking to many of the people who hold that position, they feel pretty marginalized within the institutions that uh, they serve. And oftentimes the the role is, is filled by people from marginalized groups. So Oftentimes, the chief diversity officer will be a person of color or would be a woman or will be from LGBTQ um, background. So it it has become this position of marginalized people holding this marginalized position that often does not have the kind of gravitas within the institution that one would think, you know, that that title chief diversity officer sounds like, you know, great, like they have power and they may have assistance in the whole office. And, but oftentimes what it means is that they are, uh, one person I interviewed, he was the, um, head of diversity at Yale. And, and he said that they're treated like fire extinguishers. So when there's a, a, a big problem in the workplace or there's some public embarrassment over, you know, a diversity issue. They bring in these people to put out the fire and then, you know, you don't hear from them again or they're not really listened to until the next major, you know, public flare up. And and so it's a really um, problematic <laughs> construct at, at, at many, if not most institutions. Yeah, it sounds like it's truly like a palliative solution to to a structural problem, even even just like the industry itself, the diversity right. industry. Um, yeah, it's like I, it's like a band aid on a gunshot wound. So we were wondering also um, in introducing this idea of diversity as a business, which is obviously like a crucial framework for you in, in discussing like this phenomenon historically. Like, 
what are some of the key historical events in the development of this business in the U.S., like for anyone who, who might not have have thought about it this way before? Yeah, so if we want to look at the history of, of the role, it, it began um, in the 1960s um, under uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and companies that uh, employed more than uh, 15 people were mandated to um, not to discriminate not mandated. They 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 could not discriminate based on race, um, and and it was expanded to include gender and other other categories. And so, to avoid lawsuits, um, many of these companies hired people um, to serve, uh, you know, to oversee um, those federal guidelines and to avoid lawsuits. And over time, as the the term or, you know, the meaning of diversity has been expanded, their role has also become, you know, more important in in the workplace. And really, uh, from the very beginning, it was a way of avoiding lawsuits, you know, uh, violations of the, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, you know, rules against discrimination. And I think you also mentioned like the 1980s and the 1990s talking about, you know, the Reagan administration, like neoliberal, like financial uh, policies Mm -hmm. were also like a critical, like juncture point. Like, I wondered too, if you could speak about like what it, what it was about that time. Yeah. Under Reagan, he, he began to dismantle many of the equal opportunity policies that had started to pick up steam, um, you know, under the Johnson administration moving forward, he, he began to just like slash programs. And he, um, there, there were the EEOC conciliation agreements that he, he got rid of. And so diversity then became devalued, um, at the federal level. And, as a result, you know, there, there wasn't as, as much attention paid to it, not until, um, you know, around uh, 2000, there, there was this very influential study that, that showed that, um, by the year 2000, you know, the workplace was going to really need more diversity because of the population um, projections showing that there would be more racial minorities and you would need more people equipped to take these jobs. And so you needed diversity, not just, you know, as a feel good thing or, or for, you know, out of a sense of uh, social justice, but you actually needed employers who are going to increasingly be people of color. And so diversity, again, began to pick up steam that along that study along with a lot of the um, the lawsuits that came out of the 1990s and early 2000s cast um, a light on the need for diversity once again. And so I think we're still in that kind of uh, mindset where diversity is seen as uh, th- that position has been seen as a way of both illustrating that that institutions care about this issue and also avoiding lawsuits by showing (laughs) that institutions care about this issue. So um, whether or not they care or don't, 
there is that symbolism. It's um, it, uh, a, a professor at UC Berkeley called it um, symbolic compliance. So it's a way of showing the courts that you care about an issue, whether or not you really do is not the issue. Yeah, we we actually would love to 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 circle back to that um, a little bit later in our conversation because that was a really fascinating um, insight that you shared in your book as well. Um, it would be great to actually zoom in a bit about on some of the uh, fields that you explore, like the diversity business, like manifesting in your mm-hmm. book. Um, mainly you speak about higher education, entertainment and corporate America. So we we're wondering if you could talk a bit more about like, what does the business of diversity look like in each of these realms? Um, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know if it's it's significantly different from realm to realm um, in, in terms of how they approach diversity, um, you know, in higher ed or in Hollywood or uh, in corporate America. They all have that, you know, these chief diversity officers. But I think one of the, the more surprising takeaways uh, for me is that the fields that are considered the most progressive, in, in this case, um, higher ed and and um, and Hollywood, are the least diverse. And corporate America, which could be seen as you know more conservative, uh, less progressive, is the most diverse. And so, I what um, the the way uh, it, it's been kind of expressed is in. First, the, the raw numbers. Um, corporate America, because there are more positions to fill, there's far more competition. Um, uh, many uh, many corporations have anti-nepotism clauses. So anyway, they have to really expand the outreach and try to find the best talent, ir- irrespective of race. And so, in corporate America, you have you have a workplace that far better reflects the population than say higher education or Hollywood. And so, you know, in looking at fields that are so diverse, so different, right? You, you would expect, or I expected to see more diversity in a, in a field, particularly the film industry, because you can't even argue that it's because of the pipeline and education. And, but what we do see and these these smaller, more kind of elite fields is you have fields that mostly rely on very small social networks. You have a lot of nepotism, both in Hollywood and in higher education. You have people who have wide latitude to to select um, whoever they want, and they can pick from a really small pool of people. And so because we live in a rigorously segregated society, people of color are often not in those small networks that are tapped for positions in, whether it's a position in the film industry or position in higher education. And because corporate America has to look, fan out more broadly to find talent, and there are clauses against nepotism and other things, you end up with more diversity. Um, just based on uh, the, the the business principles and the bottom line that drives uh, corporate America, as opposed to the film industry and um, 
in higher ed. So, you, you know, higher ed, it's like very, you know, you have a search committee that has really wide latitude in determining who do we want? Um, it, it's like these people are like handpicked. And so typically the candidate pool mirrors the values, the social worlds, um, the, the worldviews of the search committee. And the search committee is typically overwhelmingly white because the academy is overwhelmingly white. So you have these self-replicating, you know, um, situations that that keep diversity from flourishing and in these smaller, more elite fields. You know, and Hollywood is pretty much the same where you see families, family dynasties, you know, generation after generation holding on to these small number, you know, small number of uh, positions in the film industry. So until these fields, you know, begin to fan out and and tap into a, a broader professional network, you're going to continue to have these, you know, homogenous uh, kind of workplaces. I feel like that's a, a, a really interesting insight because I think that people tend to assume, like, as you had mentioned, that, you know, the creative industries or intellectual um, industries are kind of like naturally more socially progressive. Right. And, and that corporate America would be naturally less so. But so it is, it is, yeah, it is fascinating to, to like have it laid bare how that's like a, a complete problem. It, yeah, and also how it happens because we're not talking about like the Ku Klux Klan style racism. We're just talking about, you know, um, the way we live, right? And these, 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 these elite social spheres replicating themselves in the workplace. Um, so, you know, we have segregated neighborhoods and segregated schools and naturally, you know, uh, outgrowth of that is segregated workplaces when you're talking about these small elite fields where they can handpick. So who do you hire? You hire who you know, you hire who your friends know. So these, you know, so they, they just replicate replicate these, these social spheres and and that began to take on a life in the professional realm. And, you know, when you think about it, the fashion industry, um, museums, you know, the art world, um, all of these, you know, purportedly progressive fields are the least diverse. I mean, you just do not publishing. You just do not see much diversity in any of those those fields, yet they're in these you know, they operate out of major cities where they, there is a lot of diversity. Like just the idea of what is elite, what does an elite space look like in the, in the popular imagination? And I think it begins to, uh, it, for many, it looks like what it looks like. It's, it's very white. Um, and, and that is what has been accepted as the norm. Yeah, I think it's what's also like interesting about our like current moment, especially if we think about like media and entertainment and this kind of I I I would I guess I would observe in my own like media patterns this like mm-hmm. celebration of you know increased like representation in advertising and you know oh, and that's another one yeah of people of color as you know this type of um kind of solve another type of band-aid, I guess, that right. I think often gets 
especially in a culture of the United States, right? Where like citizenship, the idea of citizenship and the idea of being a consumer and being seen in like mass media are conflated as like one in the same Precisely. politically even, you know? So right. I feel right. like diversity discourse is leading us, I guess I'd argue in this even more insidious realm where not only like the idea of, of diversity and celebrating difference just on the one on the one hand only furthers to further normalizes like whiteness Precisely. And, everything and, that's being defined against it you know right and and it's it's interesting because i was at a party um yet another party in public in the publishing world where you know there's almost no diversity in the room I, I, they're going to stop inviting me to parties because i keep calling it out but, <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway uh so i was speaking to someone in publishing who it was a party for someone else's book, but I had brought the host a copy of my book. And this one person who works in publishing was in a corner, like reading my book throughout the party. Right. <laughs> so yeah. at, at one point he kind of corners me and he says, um, you know, like, I know our numbers are not great in publishing. He said, but you have to admit we're publishing a far greater range of, um, books about people of color and you know he goes on and tell me how like there are more children's books about and I said yeah but who's getting to decide what books are being published what authors are being published like you're still talking about a small group of, of overwhelmingly white people who are deciding what should be on the market I said don't you think that's part of the problem even if you are you know Every year you you publish 10 more books by writers of color. What are those books and who who's deciding? Exactly. So it kind of, as Isabel said before, you know, it's just like this, this solve, this band-aid that's mm -hmm. like, could be quite superficial. and doesn't really get at the core structural issues, which is all about power, which people do not want to give up, you know? Right. And so that's, I guess, my trouble with the diversity idea, especially mm -hmm. being someone who has been, you know, a beneficiary of a lot of these, you know, programs that try to be, you know, interventions in um, structural inequalities. But I guess the, one of the big problems I have with the idea and the way it's been, you know, industrialized, commodified is that, yeah, difference you, you spoke about even earlier in this conversation, like everyone in the industry is kind of deliberating about what diversity means, and it just means difference. But what, right. what never is really kind of parsed and gotten to the core of are like the the normative like structures that have been right. in place for centuries now that right. have that we right. just take for granted as the norm and everyone else is different and so that's why i really appreciate your work doing just trying to pick this pick this all apart because it, it basks i think while the intentions are good although it doesn't have to be always about like people's intentions Although that's, you know, we could talk about the courts later and how they deal with that. Um, yeah, yeah, and I'm not, I'm, not as maybe good. I'm not as convinced as you are that the intentions are always good either. <laughs> right. I'm cynical. I'm trying to be like for a little bit forgiving, you know. And as long as it's, we, we get in that there are successful models, like I don't want to end by suggesting that this is just like a hopeless conversation. So we're curious to hear uh, a bit more from you about what the outcomes of, of some of these diversity initiatives have been. Um, where, where do they succeed? Where do they fail? What, what is the range of how these yeah. programs outcomes? Well, one of the, the, the most um, 
compelling things that that came out of my research and that that uh, other uh, scholars have found is that most of the initiatives that have been adopted by institutions don't work. Um, you know, these these training programs and climate surveys and all of the things that uh, institutions are spending billions of dollars on each year, e- either they don't work and or in some cases they have been shown to do more harm to than good, that they actually trigger a backlash. Um, there was a, a study um, that was done out of Harvard that showed that um, mandatory training, which many companies have, have been shown to trigger resentment among white males. And, and one of the, the, the most uh, <laughs> dispiriting parts of the study showed that it, these efforts actually hurt the populations that they're intended to help um, five years after after these um, training programs were initiated the the percentage of black women and Asian and Asian men and women actually dropped <laughs> and so wow. you know yet companies continue to do the same thing and expect different results and if these programs work they've been and they've been practiced now for years um many law firms have been doing these training programs for 20 30 years and yet the percentage of law partners has remained unchanged the <laughs> percentage of, you know if these programs worked, we'd see the numbers moving, but we're really not seeing that. And so there have been a, a number of studies on the efficacy of these programs, and there's no compelling evidence that these programs work. And at best, um, any benefits last a day or two. Um, so, you know, I, I looked at a range of studies that have been done by, by you know, the most, um, you know, elite institutions, and they're showing that these companies are continuing to spend so much money on something, and there's no evidence that that these programs work. And I've seen in my own experience that they don't really help to change the way people think, um, and and that they do cause a lot of discomfort in, in the workplace among people of color and among whites. So why do we do this? Instead of um, what uh, one of the people I interviewed, Cyrus Murray, um, who, who litigated uh, two uh, landmark discrimination lawsuits against Texaco and Coca-Cola, he, he calls most of these initiatives drive-by diversity. So instead of like <laughs> doing real interventions that actually you know, create change and get at the structural inequalities within these institutions. They do this kind of check a box, um, you know, approach that that doesn't doesn't move the needle. Yeah. What do these programs look like? Because, I mean, I've heard a lot about like this unconscious bias testing, which to me always bugs me because it again uses this like seemingly like objective scientific way of assessing, you know, 
prejudice, but kind of relegates it to like an indiv- very individual, like cognitive, like mishap right. rather than like a dispersed, entrenched system. Right, right. So what do so, these interventions typically look like? Are they workshops? Are they speeches? Yeah, like, they're, what are, they're what are workshops, they? they're films, they're conversations, they're, um, one of the more popular ones was the, 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 the blue-eyed, brown-eyed study where, you know, kids with blue eyes were were kind of demonized and and then they switched it and the kids with brown eyes were demon just to show how it feels and what you know how easy it is how random you know prejudice can be and who the targets are but as you noted none of these um, these subconscious bias uh, training programs get at the structural issues so what does work an example of an intervention is what happened at coca-cola where instead of kind of figuring out you know what people think about black people what people think about hispanics they looked at the metrics and they looked at who was being interviewed for jobs? Who was being hired? What what did the salary structures look like? Were there disparities in you know um, the awarding of bonuses, the promotions, the training, the opportunities? And that's when you get at these structural issues, which Coca Cola did over a five year period by interrogating the metrics, having transparent metrics, and being able to make interventions in real time. So before a job was even offered, they're they're, they're questioning the managers, well who was who was interviewed? Like what did your pool look like? Um before a job offer was made um, what does this is the salary in line with other people? Are there disparities al- along racial lines, along gender lines? So they were true interventions that that over time uh, uh, were able to get at the structural inequalities in the workplace. To also piggyback on 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 what Marcel said and on your answer, I I before I transition in, into the next question, which relates to all of this. I think it's also interesting that framing oppression in, that framing any kind of oppression in this case, you know, issues of racism um, in terms of individual actors is itself like a liberal tactic. (laughs) Right, because instead of asking whether or not my coworkers like black people, Should we not instead look at whether or not there are structural inequalities in the workplace that are preventing um, that institution from embracing diversity um, in like in their candidate pools and their promotions and the in the salary structure like that is what people of color would be most (laughs) concerned about uh, whether or not there was equality, not whether or not you like black people, because (laughs) that is not nearly as important than whether I have a black friend, right? (laughs) My best friends. Right. So that, that is so, so much less. And the thing is, I just, you know, this is just my personal opinion. I don't go to work to talk about, these kind of issues. I don't go to work um, to have some consultant who I don't know what their behavior is like, and I don't know where they're getting their protocols from in training. 
to, you know, to tell me how to talk to people, how to address people. Like these are issues that if they weren't inculcated at home or in the church or in, you know, lower grades of school on, on through, like, it's not going to, the workplace is just not a place where you're, you're, you can successfully address those issues. Now, what you can address is whether people are respected, ir- ir- irrespective of race and gender and all of that. And that's not a diversity issue. That's just a workplace, <laughs> you know, um, you know, standard issue. that yeah. everyone should have to respect, you know, no matter what. But when we when we marginalize the issue and we make it something small, then you know, it people just roll their eyes. It's like, oh, here we go. We have to do this diversity training. And you it, it's as if you're saying you can address centuries of discrimination and of, you know, um, sort of embedding these ideas of racial inferiority in our curricular, in our in, in literature, in 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 art, and, and in one hour. In a training program, one hour a year, you're going to be able to successfully arrest that. I don't see where it can happen, but what you can do is intervene in the inequality that is taking place in the work in in the workplace. Yeah, and I th- also think too that's what's most stark for me, at least, about this business of diversity and how I think even the idea of diversity itself is being developed like by and through like corporations and like corporate logics is that often it seems like oftentimes to stave off that like marginalization that like the topic of diversity elicits in these contexts but also these professionals who are you know charged with you know speaking the gospel of this of this stuff is that the importance of, you know, difference or what have you is always, you know, legitimized or justified through the logics of like business. So it's like diversity is good for business. It's good for right. the economy. It's it, so it gets, right. I also get, I think it gets at the heart of like the moral and political crisis that is like neoliberal capitalism at the, in the first place, which is <laughs> that like. Precisely. Instead like, of looking, for, right, yeah. right. We're not looking at the moral imperative. We're looking at all of these other reasons, Right. To right. justify it, but but we're not looking at you know just basic you know the country model e plubius unum out of many one and like all of these you know ideals that that we hold uh, this country to and yet when it comes to the social justice of integrating people of color into the main of American life, there's there's always a backlash to that. So we have to kind of like add all of these other things around it to cover up, <laughs> to cover up, you know, the, the, the main issue of injustice, of racial discrimination, like that sounds so harsh. And I think we want diversity to sound soft. We want it to be gauzy. Like we want it to be like a gauzy, we are the world video instead of really looking at this issue of, of racial injustice. Yeah, that's, that is absolutely what we were kind of hoping to get at uh, with this whole thing. I mean, I've only, I've only experienced diversity training one time when I was working at an advertising agency, which lucky girl, unsurprisingly <laughs> was not diverse whatsoever. Um, and though I will say that I think that there was, 
there was a lot of cringeworthy things that were said and happened in that space. So I do think that in a way the diversity training had a, a role in like mm-hmm. maybe out like certain behaviors that, that weren't acceptable, but it was really strange to have that, to have sort of everyone finish the online tutorial or whatever it was. And then, and then feel like, okay, check. We don't have any right. races working here. So we're yeah. good. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Exactly as we were. I found the box, check a box and and move on into spaces that are homogenous and where there's no diversity, (laughs) but we did our training. Yeah. (laughs) So, well, we would also like to, uh, to circle back as we had mentioned a little earlier into these questions of sort of like the legal and financial um, context of of the diversity business for companies. So mm-hmm. towards the end of your book, you highlight the work of sociologists and law professor Lauren Edelman, who mm-hmm. researched how corporate managers have been enforcing equal opportunity laws in the U.S. since the passage of the Civil Rights um, Act in 1964. Mm-hmm. And the findings of her study led her to write that quote, multi-million dollar diversity initiatives may actually be intended for corporations to save money. So mm-hmm. we we're hoping that you could sort of talk more about your take on the study and and these findings and like just probe a little more into this question mm-hmm. of like, what is the diversity business? Well, what and who does it actually benefit? Right. So, so okay, uh, I'll, I'll answer that by first preceding it with... Um, what happens, right? How how these positions come to be. So a few recent examples, um, Gucci uh, had a big public scandal over using blackface in, in some of its designs, right? So it got a lot of media, atten- media attention. So what does Gucci do? They do what most companies do in that situation. They hire a chief diversity officer. And this becomes like this high profile position. And um, what does it say to the public? Gucci cares about diversity. So the same thing happened at Prada and Burberry and all of these companies that get called out for something, um, you know, that happens in the workplace. Another example is Starbucks, right? Starbucks. And then they have these high profile initiatives and, you know, they close all their stores for a day. Check. Right. So they cared about diversity. Now, what uh, uh, Professor Edelman's study showed is that companies employ what she calls symbolic compliance. So they they erect this apparatus of diversity and, you know, they spend millions of dollars on it. In some cases like uh, Google, where there's very little diversity, I think um, the African-Americans in, in, in tech jobs at Google is around 2%. But what do they do? They spend more than $100 million a year on diversity initiatives. And what Uh, Edelman found is that companies can do this because if they're sued, and many of them are constantly being sued, the courts care more about the mere um, existence of a diversity apparatus than they do the efficacy of that apparatus. So by merely having a diversity apparatus, companies are actually shielding themselves from having to pay out the kind of multi-million dollar settlements that that Coca-Cola 
paid out and that Texaco paid out, you know, where they paid out tens of millions of dollars in, in, in settlements on discrimination lawsuits. So in that way, she found that companies are actually saving money by by having this diversity apparatus, um, you know, in their midst. And this has all to do, right, with how judges historically have, you know, implemented or uh, enforced the diverse, like, I guess, the equal protection laws in the in the mm-hmm. 60s. I remember you, mm-hmm. you writing something about the levels of scrutiny that these that um, judges across the country have used to, you know, um, deal with discrimination cases. And it right, seems- they basically, right, they basically tell these companies, okay, you know, um, you, you need to do diversity training, or you need to hire diversity officers. So anyway, companies can just do that. And just merely by doing that, they don't have to, the, the, these um, initiatives don't have to work. They just have to be, <laughs> they just have to have yeah. to do them. And, and it's back to the kind of drive-by diversity. It's, 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 it's symbolic. Right. And you, and you bring up this, there's this really powerful quote in your book that I just want to uh, recount here because when I read it, I like, I had to put the book down. I was like, wow, she really, she really came through with these, with these lines. Uh, but you write, uh, the diversity apparatus serves as a shield against successful biased lawsuits that are already difficult to win. Diversity professionals help institutionalize and legitimize the models of compliance through journals, conventions, and workshops. And then you talk about how this this entire apparatus is these professionals really working to, to to rationalize their their own profession and the need for their own existence in a way. So right. trickling down, I guess, if we're keeping with the whole how Reagan Reagan's role in all of this, trickling down from like the legal structures and like the way corporations are looking to ha- looking uh, for ways to uh, respond to these um, equal opportunity measures, the diversity crops up in order to kind of keep this uh, machine i know it sounds cynical but to keep this mm-hmm. keep this machine kind of a uh, rationalized and legitimized through all mm-hmm. these di- a variety of different you know platforms and and arenas right right yeah i mean it sounds pretty cynical but it's also i mean it makes sense that major institutions would want to protect themselves and if courts don't really pay attention to the efficacy of the the initiatives, then why would they bother? <laughs> you know, they, they do what they have to do to protect themselves. You know, it, it, and what Edelman says is, if courts began to really look under the hood <laughs> and look at what is actually taking place and whether it's working, only then would companies be kind of pressured to do more than um, have symbolic compliance. Thank you. Well, f- first of all, for that like extremely thorough background, and we wanted to pivot to end with a question about our contemporary times and like changes in the workplace now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, in this current pandemic condition, office work has essentially like ground to a halt for most everyone, and mm-hmm. we who knows like how long people will be working from home. So of course that will affect office culture, but how might it also affect diversity in the workplace? Yeah. So, well, well, what we have seen is how the pandemic has uh, 
disproportionately uh, affected people of color. We're particularly African Americans um, in some cities, or you know, are seventy percent of the COVID fatalities when they're like less than thirty percent of the population. And what we see is how um, the, the disparities in in work, in the kind of work, who can work from home? You know, that's kind of a luxury. And so you have people of color primarily on the front line out, you know, you know, whether they're delivering the food or delivering your packages or, or, you know, working in these stores that they're on the front line. So we see the the disparity, right. And um, it's kind of, it's kind of heartbreaking. And I, I worry too about the impact um, that the economic uh, recession, if not depression, will have on diversity. Um, who, who's the first to be the last hired, you know, or typically the, the first fired. So th- this could have a, a really, really uh, profound impact on on racial diversity in in the workplace. I hope I hope that's not the case, but but it but it is a concern. I absolutely. And I for me, you know, this whole situation has got me to seriously take pause and think about, you know, this situation is a time for like radical like reimagining of what could be right because obviously like what was what was normal was already you know a terrible situation although we'd been kind of socialized to think that everything was normal so obviously this pandemic as you just as you just um outlined has really brought into relief so many of the intersecting um, inequalities in the justices had that have been, you know, part and parcel to our society for, you know, for centuries. But I guess right. in the spirit of like, you know, how can we, how can we, you know, imagine, imagine a new world? I know that sounds intense, but I feel like it is that we are, it is that urgent. Mm-hmm. I w- it would be awesome to hear from you, like what, if you think, and this is a big question, so please feel free to be like, scale this down. Um, if you think, <laughs> the, if you c- could, you know, radically like reimagine like what a diversity business, what a diversity industry, an approach that would be, you know, uh, more aligned with uh, creating uh, some of the longstanding um, sustainable structural changes, like. Yeah. What could well, that you, what could that look like if we're putting everything on the table that, well, that, that the, needs to get the done? The thing is, like the industry of diversity, you know, it it really is um it it it, it it's kind of symbolic it because you okay. Achieving diversity is not rocket science, yet this huge apparatus that's grown out of it suggests that it's so hard and that we need like all of these professionals to be devoted to this this one thing. All we really need to do is expand our net the networks that we're tapping into to hire people of color, whether it's like tapping into, uh, um, you know, more professional networks, professional networks of color, but it's not, it's not really that hard. And, and we're making it into something that is just so unattainable. Um, something that Lee Bollinger, the, the president of Columbia University 
said is that you really have to have a civil rights mindset for diversity to work. It, it's not a matter of the strategies that 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 you are looking to adopt because there are there are many strategies that you can you can um, adopt to achieve diversity. You have to really want to achieve diversity, and, and it comes down to leadership and intention. So it's it's not that there's some like you know, this huge idea that's, that's yet to be discovered that will like automatically change this conversation. It is the will to have diversity and whether or not that means you tapping into a civil rights mindset, a idea of social justice and equality. Um, like that's really all that we're talking about. It's not some unattainable thing that, that people are making it out to be. It's, it's the ability, the willingness to fold people who have historically been left out of so many fields, whether it's advertising, fashion, Hollywood. It's saying, okay, enough. Let's fold people in because it's no longer a, a, the problem of the pipeline. You know, for years they said, oh, there's just not enough people, you know, who have these degrees, not enough people who have been trained. That is no longer the problem. The problem is the unwillingness to 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 bring in people who come from different backgrounds, who look differently, who are different culturally, and who are treated as if they are less American um, than 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 white Americans. And that re- it's it's really that simple, but yet it's that profound. So right. yeah, if people are looking for some magic bullet, that is the magic bullet. You have to stop you have to stop pretending that this is an unattainable goal and you have to want to do it. Right. It's like imagining what's possible. And I, I and and in doing the necessary work and hard work, which includes redistributing power and resources that people just don't want to give up. I mean, I also wonder too if it's like the business approach to like the you know, quote, diversity problem is also possibly part of the problem for the lack of diversity, because it seems like when like market logics are used as like the primary solve for these issues, then you create this kind of paradox um, where people's jobs, you know, they, these diversity officers ideally, you know, likely don't want to, you know, have their Maybe not to say they don't want to have their jobs exist, but it seems like part of their their role is to kind of embed these um, um, ideas about ethics, equality, what have you, into institutions. So perhaps it becomes you know more more natural to the institution. I'm referring to actually a book by Sarah Ahmed um, on being included, where she interviewed. Uh, a bunch of diversity uh, practitioners in universities in the mm-hmm. UK and Australia. And she, in her interviews, she's talking a lot. She, she found that a lot of them talked about one of the main goals of their job being to make their jobs obsolete. So like the idea is all about like, you know, at least, you know, rhetorically speaking, you know, they, they mm-hmm. say like my job is to kind of make diversity automatic, make it something that people just do and don't have to think about. And she's, she talks about this like paradox that these pr- pr- practitioners face. And this is a quote, from her book she says 
When your task is to remove the necessity of your existence, then your existence is necessary for the task. So it almost creates like a situation <laughs> where like they're they're trying right. to sow the seeds of their own demise because that's what we're trying to get to, but it's become this like really deep network of industries, conferences and what have you that kind of keep the problem justifying uh, their existence. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. It, but, and it's more than that too, is that oftentimes they're afraid to really rock the boat because rocking the boat in these institutions won't bode well for your career. And so they're in these positions where they are agents of change and yet they're afraid to assert what needs to happen <laughs> to bring about that change. And so, you know, oftentimes they are the diversity within these institutions. So, you know, they're marginalized, they're afraid, they make good money, um, and 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 they're, they're really unable to do what's needed. They're unable to have the conversations that need to be had. And when they do, their heads roll. So it, it's a it's a pretty. Um, I I have a lot of uh, compassion for them because I I think they're they're between a rock and a hard place. Isabel, I think that's all our questions, right? Yeah, that that is all of them, and we're also exactly on the hour mark. So shout out to us. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Pamela. This was a fantastic conversation that we have been, as I said, really excited about having and are, are huge fans of your work and your writing. So oh, thank you so much. Well, this was fun. If, if we could, if we could call this depressing conversation fun. <laughs> right. Right. Well, if Pamela, you stimulate during these times of being home and, and, and unsure. If people want to follow, follow you, follow your work, are you on social media? Where I'm on Twitter. Uh, PT Newkirk on Twitter uh, and on Instagram and Pamela Newkirk uh, Facebook. What else is there? <laughs> yeah, I guess yeah. those. Are, that's a trifecta. Well, we're gonna have to add you on Instagram then. We're, this is yeah. so great. Thank you so much. Um, Top Rank Podcast. Our conversation with Pamela Newkirk, journalist, professor, author of the new book Diversity Inc. Talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.